Book Two, Chapter Five of The History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Two, Chapter Five. Voyage along the coast. Donna Marina, Spaniards land in Mexico, interview with the Aztecs. The fleet held its course so near the shore that the inhabitants could be seen on it, and as it swept along the winding borders of the gulf, the soldiers, who had been on the former expedition of Grijalva, pointed out to their companions the memorable places on the coast. Here was the Rio de Alvarado, named after the Gallian adventurer, who was present also in this expedition. There the Rio de Vanderes, in which Grijalva had carried on so lucrative a commerce with the Mexicans, and there the Ista de los Sacrificios, where the Spaniards first saw the vestiges of human sacrifice on the coast. The fleet had now arrived off San Juan de Ulua, the island so named by Grijalva. The weather was temperate and serene, and crowds of natives were gathered on the shore of the mainland, gazing at the strange phenomena as the vessels glided along under easy sail on the smooth bosom of the waters. It was the evening of Thursday in Passion Week. The air came pleasantly off the shore, and Cortez, liking the spot, thought he might safely anchor under the lee of the island, which would shelter him from the nortes that sweep over these seas with fatal violence in the winter, sometimes even late in the spring. The ships had not been long at anchor when a light pirogue filled with natives shot off from the neighboring continent and steered for the general's vessel distinguished by the royal ensign of Castile, floating from the mast. The Indians came on board with a frank confidence, inspired by the accounts of the Spaniards spread by their countrymen who had traded with Grijalva. They brought presents of fruits and flowers and little ornaments of gold, which they gladly exchanged for the usual trinkets. Cortez was baffled in his attempts to hold a conversation with his visitors by means of the interpreter, Aguilar, who was ignorant of the language. The Mayan dialects, with which he was conversant, bearing too little resemblance to the Aztec. The natives supplied the deficiency, as far as possible, by the uncommon vivacity and significance of their gestures, the hieroglyphics of speech. But the Spanish commander saw with chagrin the embarrassments which he must encounter in future for want of a more perfect medium of communication. In this dilemma, he was informed that one of the female slaves given to him by the Tabascan chiefs was a native Mexican, and understood the language. Her name, that given to her by the Spaniards, was Marina, and, as she was to exercise a most important influence on their fortunes, it is necessary to acquaint the reader with something of her character and history. She was born at Panaya, in the province of Coatzacoalco, on the southeastern borders of the Mexican Empire. Her father, a rich and powerful cacique, died when she was very young. Her mother married again, and, having a son, she conceived the infamous idea of securing to this offspring of her second union Marina's rightful inheritance. She accordingly feigned that the latter was dead, but secretly delivered her into the hands of some itinerant traders of Chicalanco. She availed herself, at the same time, of the death of a child of one of her slaves, to substitute the corpse for that of her own daughter, and celebrated the obsequies with mock solemnity. These particulars are related by the honest old soldier Bernal Diaz, who knew the mother and witnessed the generous treatment of her afterwards by Marina. 
by the merchants the indian maiden was again sold to the cacique of tabasco who delivered her as we have seen to the spaniards from the place of her birth she was well acquainted with the mexican tongue which indeed she is said to have spoken with great elegance her residence in tabasco familiarized her with the dialects of that country so she could carry on a conversation with aguilar which he in turn rendered into the castilian thus a certain though somewhat circuitous channel was opened to cortez for communicating with the aztecs a circumstance of the last importance to the success of his enterprise it was not very long however before marina who had a lively genius made herself so far the mistress of the castilian as to supersede the necessity of any other linguist she learned it the more readily and it was to her the language of love cortez who appreciated the value of her services from the first made her his interpreter then his secretary and won by her charms his mistress with the aid of his two intelligent interpreters cortez entered into conversation with his indian visitors he learned that they were mexicans or rather subjects of the great mexican empire of which their own province formed one of the comparatively recent conquests the country was ruled by a powerful monarch called moctezuma or by europeans more commonly montezuma who dwelt on the mountain plains of the interior nearly seventy leagues from the coast their own province was governed by one of his nobles named tojitile whose residence was eight leagues distance cortez acquainted them in turn with his own friendly views in visiting their country and with his desire of an interview with the aztec governor he then dismissed them loaded with presents having first ascertained that there was an abundance of gold in the interior like the specimens that they had brought cortez pleased with the manners of the people and the goodly reports of the land resolved to take up his quarters here for the present the next morning april twenty first being good friday he landed with all his force on the very spot which now stands the modern city of veracruz little did the conqueror imagine that the desolate beach on which he first planted his foot was one day to be covered by a flourishing city the great mart of european and oriental trade the commercial empire of new spain it was a wide and level plain except where the sand had been drifted into hillocks by the perpetual blowing of the norte on these sand hills he mounted his little battery of guns so as to give him the command of the country he then employed the troops in cutting down small trees and bushes which grew near in order to provide a shelter from the weather in this he was aided by the people of the country sent as it appeared by the governor of the district to assist the spaniards with their help stakes were firmly set in the earth and covered with boughs and with mats and cotton carpets which the friendly natives brought with them in this way they secured in a couple of days a good defence against the scorching rays of the sun which beat with intolerable fierceness on the sands the place was surrounded by stagnant marshes the exhalations of which quickened by the heat into the pestilent malaria have occasioned in later times wider mortality to europeans than all the hurricanes on the coast the bilious disorders now the terrible scourge of the tierra caliente were little known before the conquest the seeds of the poison seem to have been scattered by the hand of civilization for for it is only necessary to settle a town and draw together a busy european population in order to call out the malignity of the venom which had before lurked in the atmosphere while these arrangements were in progress the natives flocked in from the adjacent district which was tolerably populous in the interior drawn by a natural curiosity to see the wonderful strangers they brought with them fruit vegetables flowers in abundance 
game, and many dishes cooked after the fashion of the country, with little articles of gold and other ornaments. They gave away some presents, and bartered others for the wares of the Spaniards, so that the camp, crowded with a motley throng of every age and sex, wore the appearance of a fair. From some of the visitors Cortes learned of the intention of the governor to wait on him the following day. This was Easter. Tehuitile arrived, as he had announced, before noon. He was attended by a numerous train, and was met by Cortes, who conducted him with much ceremony to his tent, where his principal officers were assembled. The Aztec chief returned their salutations with polite, though formal, courtesy. Mass was first said by Father Olmedo, and the service was listened to by Teutile and his attendants with decent reverence. A collation was afterwards served, at which the general entertained his guest with Spanish wines and confections. The interpreters were then introduced, and a conversation commenced between the parties. The first inquiries of Teutile were respecting the country of the strangers and the purport of their visit. Cortes told him that he was the subject of a potent monarch beyond the seas who ruled over an immense empire and had kings and princes for his vassals. That, acquainted with the greatness of the Mexican emperor, his master had desired to enter into communication with him and had sent him as an envoy to wait on Montezuma with a present in token of his good will and a message which he must deliver in person. He concluded by inquiring of Teutile when he could be admitted to his sovereign's presence. To this the Aztec noble somewhat haughtily replied, How is it that you have been here only two days, and demand to see the emperor? He then added, with more courtesy, that he was surprised to learn that there was another monarch, as powerful as Montezuma, but if that were so, he had no doubt his master would be happy to communicate with him. He would send his couriers with the royal gift brought by the Spanish commander, and so soon as he learned Montezuma's will, would communicate it. Teotile then commanded his slaves to bring forward the present intended for the Spanish general. It consisted of ten loads of fine cotton, several mantles of that curious featherwork whose rich and delicate dyes might vie with the most beautiful painting, and a wicker basket filled with ornaments of wrought gold, all calculated to inspire the Spaniards with high ideas of the wealth and mechanical ingenuity of the Mexicans. Cortes received these presents with suitable acknowledgments, and ordered his own attendants to lay before the chief the articles designed for Montezuma. These were an armchair, richly carved and painted, a crimson cap of cloth, having a gold medal emblazoned with St. George and the dragon, and a quantity of collars, bracelets, and other ornaments of cut glass, which, in a country where glass was not to be had, might claim to have had the value of real gems, and no doubt passed for such with the inexperienced Mexicans. Teotile observed a soldier in the camp with a shining gilt helmet on his head, which he said reminded him of one worn by the god Quetzalcoatl in Mexico. He then showed a desire that Montezuma should see it. The coming of the Spaniards, as the reader will soon see, was associated with some traditions of this same deity. Cortes expressed his willingness that the cacique should be sent to the emperor, intimating a hope that it would be returned filled with gold dust of the country that he might be able to compare its quality with that in his own. He further told the governor, as we are informed by his chaplain, that the Spaniards were troubled with the disease of the heart, for which gold was a specific remedy. In short, says Las Casas, he contrived to make his want of gold very clear to the governor. While these things were passing, Cortes observed one of Teutile's attendants busy with a pencil, apparently delineating some object. On looking at his work, he found it was a sketch on canvas of the Spaniards, 
their costumes and arms, in short, different objects of interest, giving to each its appropriate form and color. This was the celebrated picture-writing of the Aztecs, and as Teotile informed him, this man was employed in portraying the various objects for the eyes of Montezuma, who would thus gather a more vivid notion of their appearance than from any description by words. Cortez was pleased with this idea, and as he knew little how much the effect would be heightened by converting still life into action, he ordered out the cavalry on the beach, the wet sands of which afforded a firm footing for the horses. The bold and rapid movements of the troops, as they went through the military exercises, the apparent ease with which they managed the fiery animals on which they were mounted, the glancing of their weapons, the shrill cry of the trumpet, all filled the spectators with astonishment. But when they heard the thunders of the cannon, which Cortez ordered to be fired at the same time, and witnessed the volumes of smoke and flame issuing from these terrible engines, and the rushing sound of the balls as they dashed through the trees of the neighboring forest, shivering their branches into fragments, they were filled with consternation, from which the Aztec chief himself was not wholly free. Nothing of this was lost on the painters, who faithfully recorded, after their fashion, every particular, not omitting the ships, the water-houses, as they called them, of the strangers, which, with their dark hulls and snow-white sails reflected from the water, were swinging lazily at anchor on the calm bosom of the bay, always depicted with a fidelity that excited, in their turn, the admiration of the Spaniards, who, doubtless unprepared for this exhibition of skill, greatly overestimated the merits of the execution. These various matters completed, Teotile with his attendants withdrew from the Spanish quarters, with the same ceremony with which he had entered them, leaving orders that his people should supply the troops with provisions and other articles requisite for their accommodation, till further instructions from the capital. End of Book 2, Chapter 5